You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and find Genesis 1 on page 1. <laughs> and some of you might have thought about laughing since we have been in the last book of the Bible for so many weeks, the book of Revelation, wondering why I'm turning us to Genesis 1. And the reason for that is because the passage that we are going to be studying this morning in Revelation is the completion of the story. And you may say, well, I don't understand that because it's Revelation 11 and Revelation has 22 chapters. Well, I hope you will be able to clearly understand why I believe that statement I just made is true. But in order for us to be able to understand how Revelation 11, 15 through 19, is the end of this most awesome, best written, most fantastic story ever told is because of the beginning. We find in the beginning the purpose that the author has for all of this, all of creation, all of history, all of the future that Revelation speaks to begins in Genesis 1. The author tells us in the opening chapter what the purpose of his creation is. Look at verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then look at the objective, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the plan. And as we continue chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 and begin to really focus on the words and the instruction that God gives to Adam, we realize that these opening verses in chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, are not simply God's instruction to make sure that the earth has a population more than two. The purpose that the author of the story has is that God would dwell with his people and his people would dwell with him and they would do so across the entire earth. That's the purpose. And we see it in chapter 2. We see it specifically in chapter 3 as the activity of the Lord walking with Adam and Eve, not just physically, but in spiritual communion, is shattered in chapter 3. And it seems as though this original plan that the author had for this amazing story is left in broken shards of glass spread all over the earth, never to be returned again. And yet, gracious God had a solution, didn't he? Look at Genesis 3 and verse 15. The Lord God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and your offspring and 
her offspring. As the pages of the New Testament unfold, we realize that the Lord was pointing the serpent, pointing Adam and Eve to the ultimate offspring of the woman who would be none other than Jesus Christ. And the Lord says through this amazing imagery that he, the offspring, Jesus Christ, will bruise the serpent's head. That is mortal imagery. The bruising of the head with this imagery is that one day the serpent would be dealt a mortal blow by the offspring of the woman. And at this stage of the story, the details aren't all filled in. But we get this seed planted by this awesome and most incredible author of the greatest story ever told that there will be a day when evil will be defeated. But it also says that the serpent will bruise the offspring's heel. If you've ever had a bruised heel, you know it's annoying. It's painful. Every step it reminds you of the bruise. And it's at this point that we see the pattern that continues today to be foretold. Would you turn over to Psalm 2 to see this continue? If you grabbed one of those Bibles, Psalm 2 can be found on page 448. Psalm 2 is likely written by David. He was right likely writing about his young son Solomon who would succeed his throne. And as David looked back on the years of his reign, he understood that the pattern that was set up in Genesis 3.15 continued during his reign, that the nations raged against Israel, that the nations gathered against, it says here, against the Lord's anointed, the, the Lord's representative. But by the way, the word in Hebrew that's translated anointed is Messiah. And David looks back on his reign and says that the nations assembled against the Lord's representative, David himself, and raged and planned to defeat God by defeating the Lord's anointed. The expectation by David was that this would continue in Solomon's reign because he knew this pattern of the story would continue over and over and over again. And so as the years have progressed, the anticipation of that defeat of the serpent, the anticipation of the defeat of the evil one continued to grow and to grow and to grow. Almost like the fans of a football team grow in their anticipation for their team to win a Super Bowl. Now, we in Kansas City are spoiled over the last few years, but there are plenty of teams who have never won a Super Bowl. In fact, back in the year 2000, there were two teams that battled in the Super Bowl whose organizations had never won a Super Bowl. I want to show you a video clip of the last seconds of that game. Now, before we play it, I just want to set it up for you. The St. Louis Rams were playing against the Tennessee Titans. Both teams had never won the Super Bowl, and we were down to the last five seconds. Tennessee was down by seven points. For those of you who don't know football, that means you have to score a touchdown and get an extra point, or they could have gone for two and actually won the Super Bowl. So five seconds left. Here's the play. 
from the 10. Probably the final play of the game. In regulation. It is caught by oh. Dyson. Can he get in? No, he cannot. Mike Jones made the tackle. And so much to my chagrin, because I can't stand St. Louis, the St. Louis Rams won the Super Bowl. And you can see even the beginning, Dick Vermeil is raising his hands and the Super Bowl champion crowd is cheering and they're so excited. But that, that, that last play was amazing. It, it showed that they were so close. They were inches away from being able to win the Super Bowl. In fact, the receiver was running and as he was being tackled, he, he reached out to try to just pass the line. All he has to do is have the tip of the ball touch that end line and, he, and they win. They would have been able to at least tie or win the championship. Now what happened in the broadcast in the seconds that followed was amazing. Check it out. Winning year since 89. A team that was 4-12 and last year. A team that lost their multi-million dollar free agent quarterback in preseason winning the Super Bowl by a yard. Same play. Many people will wonder Different why angles. they throw the football into the end zone. Well, the end zone is evaluating it, criticizing it, you try to throw it summarizing it. Different angles, slow motion, this is a same play. Trying to make this tackle, Dyson doesn't the end of the game. Quickly. Mike Jones, the Super Bowl champions, an awful lot of credit for being right there over on the spot. and there over and over yard. and over again. There is your sequel. Well-designed play. Pretty amazing play, play. To make first downs. from different angles, all confirmed. The same thing. The end of the game. Super Bowl champions. Friends, I think this is the gift of the book of Revelation. Is that it is intended to provide for us over and over and over again the plan that God has to bring all of those patterns of the nations raging against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord's people to the final play where the king is going to win the Super Bowl. That's Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Look at the big idea in your notes. It's time to celebrate. It has all come down to this. The king and his people win. Now, I know, again, some of you are asking the question, well, this is chapter 11. It's not chapter 22. How can you say this is the end? Well, we'll unpack that as we study this morning. Let me read Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, listen to this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. Sound familiar? But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. 
There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Four observations of the king as he celebrates his championship that should elicit within us cause to celebrate. Number one, the king's coronation. The king's coronation. Last week, I did not dig into verse 14 because verse 14 is actually setting up 15 through 19. It says, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The foundation for what this means was actually given to us back in chapter 8, verse 13, where the angel said, that was flying overhead, that was like an eagle, there will be three woes, each associated with the last three trumpets. And so it's logical then, because of what the angel said, that the third woe would be associated with the seventh trumpet. Now, woes are typically executions of God's divine judgment. Here the seventh trumpet and the third woe focuses in on a kingdom. It says in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So the question must be asked, what is this kingdom? And there are some who believe that this kingdom to which this verse refers is the millennial kingdom, a kingdom defined by what chapter 20 appears to be, and that is a time of 1,000 years, that is a kingdom here on earth where Jesus sets it up, the saints rule with him for a 1,000 years, and then Satan is released for a time, and then a final rebellion takes place, and then Jesus defeats that rebellion once and for all. That is what those people would say these verses mean. But I think there are too many inconsistencies in that conclusion for me to agree with it. Not just inconsistencies with the book of Revelation, but inconsistencies for how Genesis to Revelation develops. Let me give you three reasons why I don't think this is the supposed millennial kingdom, but instead the eternal kingdom. First, this kingdom is eternal. It says in verse 15 that when the kingdom is declared, he, Christ, shall reign forever and ever. That is the indication that the kingdom has come, that Christ has begun to reign fully and completely forever and ever. A second reason is that this kingdom follows final judgment on the world system. It says in verse 15, the kingdom singular of the world has become the kingdom singular of our Lord and of his Christ. This is not the kingdoms of the world where he systematically defeats all of the kingdoms, but instead the world system. The world system that I'll show you in just a moment, Daniel 7 refers to, that we'll see in chapter 14 is referred to as Babylon the Great, not a literal city or a literal nation, but instead the world system. And it says that that world system has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. A, a third reason I don't believe that this is referring to the supposed millennial kingdom is that woes are associated with judgment. And we see in verse 
18 that this is the final judgment. The dead are judged. The saints are rewarded. That is the final judgment. These verses are not strict chronology. They're not focusing on events as they chronologically unfold, but instead the content of the events. What is surrounding the crowning of Christ? What is surrounding him being put on the throne once and for all? That's what these verses contain, simply denoting the contents of the final play of the championship. This is the coronation, which is interesting given what happened yesterday, isn't it? We'll get into that in just a moment. By the way, this is not the first time that these details in these verses or what we've just read about the witnesses have been declared. This is not the first person to see this vision. In fact, would you turn back to Daniel chapter 7? If you grabbed one of those Bibles from the seats, that's page 744. Daniel 7 is a vision that Daniel attempts to describe in details that he symbolically pens for the purpose of teaching spiritual truth, similar to John. This is what prophets do. In Daniel 7, in verse 7, he describes a fourth beast. The three beasts have been previously described in his vision. He says in Daniel 7, 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, I don't think what Daniel is doing here is saying that someday in the future there will be a literal beast that will have literal great iron teeth that will have literal ten horns. He's using symbolic description to describe spiritual truth. And as the verses of this vision unfold, Daniel is perplexed. And it's almost like he does exactly what John does. He comes back to the vision to try to better understand it, to try to better explain it. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Verse 16, he approaches one of those who stood there and asked him to further explain in better detail. Verse 19 says, then I desired to know the truth about that fourth beast that was different from all the rest. This is the beast described in verse 7. It says in verse 20 about the ten horns that were on its head and the other ten horns that came up and before which... Three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions is described as the one who makes war against the ancient of days. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 11? That there will be a season of time described at the beginning of Revelation 11 as 42 months, as 1260 days. That will be described in chapters 12 through 14 as time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years 
that there will be a time when they attempt to trample the holy city. They attempt to defeat the temple of God. They attempt to defeat the church. And I think that's what this vision is describing to Daniel. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war against the saints and prevailed over them. Again, chapter 11. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 15 through 19 of Revelation 11. Verse 23, it talks about the fourth kingdom again, different from all other kingdoms, devouring the whole earth. That's a world system that encompasses the whole earth. It tramples it down. It breaks it to pieces. The world thinks that the world system is for their own benefit, but it's not. It's for the agenda of the one who reigns over the earth under the oversight of God. Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. Look at verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand. Remember remember Revelation 11. Remember when it says that the end of the church witnessing, when that time comes to the end, it will appear as though the world system defeats the church. That's what this is describing. They shall be given into his hand. It says here for a time, times, and half a time, describing three and a half, which is cutting short seven, completion. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Verse 27, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints, the most high. His kingdom, Christ, shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Isn't that awesome? This is not the first time that a prophet has been given the vision of the Super Bowl championship. Go back to Revelation 11, would you please? We see here the coronation of the king. This is similar to what was experienced yesterday. How many of you watched the coronation of King Charles? Yeah, I can't put up my hand either. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I I just, I wasn't into it, but I figured one or two of you were, and one of you did. (laughs) Here's what I want to show you. On September 8th, 2022... Charles became king. But it wasn't until yesterday that it was official in terms of nothing further was needed, right? Same thing is true with Jesus Christ. Christ has always been king. But there were some details of redemptive history that God had ordained before the foundation of the world that all had to take place, that all still has to take place. And so while Christ is king, he even said this in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that when he was here on earth, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declared himself king. His crucifixion and resurrection affirmed him as king, but his coronation is described Here in verse 15 of Revelation 11. Now, I think this is the epicenter of the book of Revelation. All throughout the Bible, the authors of Scripture use a a literary device that, that looks like an X. 
And I won't get into all the detail of it, but I, but I want you to see that what these authors do is they use the, the image of an X and the way that they describe things to, to point to the center of the X. That, that's creative. We don't do that today as Americans. I, I actually read John MacArthur's commentary on this, and he, he would not agree with what, what I'm going to show you, and I respect where he comes from. I just think it's a I think it focuses more on a modern way of looking at scripture than it does the ancient way, but we can get into that in more detail as the other chapters unfold. In fact, I, I remember when I saw things the way that he did, I, I remember him saying that he would go over and preach revelation to Russians at pastor's conferences, and they would say, hey, that's how we read this, and he would say, that's, that's why this is the right position. But I'm looking at that now, and I'm saying, well, 21st century Russians and Americans are not the authorities on how to read this ancient text. The, the ancient world is the better way to look at it. And when you look at Genesis to Revelation, you see that the ancient authors actually use this, this approach. And so I'm going to have the team put an image up on the screen. What I would just ask you to do is take a picture of it, and you can dig into it in more detail. But here, here's the X. You see how it comes toward the middle of 11, 15 through 19? I'll get out of the way so you don't have my bald head in there. But, but I think that's what the author is doing in Revelation. As he's starting out in 1, the way that he's going to finish in 22. And as you see, there's, there's parallels and they progress toward a center point, toward the X, toward the middle of the X. And I, I think the middle of the X is right here in 11, 15 through 19. So I think the original audience would have been able to start to realize this and would have realized this is the epicenter of Revelation this is the coronation of the king. So at this point, there's reason to celebrate. Now, why is there a remaining 11 chapters of Revelation? Because more details are needed. More development is needed, and the rest of the X needs to be provided. But suffice it to say, verse 15 provides us reason to celebrate because of the king's coronation. Second of all, the king's celebration. The king's celebration in verse 16 of Revelation 11, we're reintroduced to our old friends. Verse 16, the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God. Remember back in chapter 4, we were introduced to these 24 elders. Chapter 4, verse 4, and I said to you that I believe these are 24 representatives of all believers of all time. From the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem, everybody who places their faith in God and trusts in the completed work of Jesus Christ, either looking forward to him, looking at him, or looking back to those glorious activities that he accomplished, are included in the 24 elders. And what do they do? Look at what they do. They, they do what is appropriate. As they look at the coronated king, they fall on their faces. Friends, this is appropriate when you see the coronated king. There's something about not caring how we look in worship, isn't there? You know, I've struggled with raising my hands in worship. That's not how I grew up. In fact, I remember we would always joke if somebody in our church raised their hands in worship, that <laughs> what's wrong with them? 
But as I've worked through my own journey of a physical outward expression of what's going on inward in my heart, I realize there's a precedent for it in Scripture. The Psalms are filled with physical expressions. Kings would raise up their hands as they prayed. And while I think there is a valid consideration to make sure that my physical expressions are not distracting from the worship of others, I think it's appropriate for us to not care what we look like when we worship. And so, friends, you are deputized to raise your hands in worship, to put a smile on your face when you worship. Because we're in the presence of the coronated king. And I think what John is doing here is he's saying it's less about the celebration of the what and more about the who. So let's not focus on posture and raising hands. Let's focus on the who that they're celebrating. I had a pastor friend that I met with this last week, and we were talking about Revelation, and he said he's planning to preach Revelation soon, and he said that he told, told his church family that there's not going to be any charts or, or any you know, timelines, and he said, because that's not the point of Revelation, and I'm, I'm following him. I'm like a puppy, like, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, the point of Revelation is Christ, and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, where we differed is he said he thinks the point is that you put Christ and his judgment so much on display that it's intended to be evangelistic and intended to have the wicked who read this convert. And that's where I was like, ah, slightly disagree. I think the point of Revelation is to put Christ on so beautiful and so magnificent display that it fills believers with hope. And the hope the believers have, no matter what they're facing, no matter what persecution, no matter what suffering, is is, is so impactful for the world that they're like, I I want that. How do I get that? And and we say, Christ. But I'm going to stick to the Super Bowl and football illustration. Let me put a picture up on the screen of a a, a shirt that I have. (laughs) I bought this when he was a rookie, and I looked at this, and, you know, you look at the guy, and you're like, oh, there, there might be hope, and there is hope. I mean, think about the playoffs this last year. If you didn't watch them, here's what happened. In the first game of the playoffs, this, this is Patrick Mahomes, by the way. In the first game of the playoffs, he, he hurt his ankle. And even while you're watching the TV, you can hear the crowd. You know how when you watch a game and the crowd is, is full and you just hear this like roar? Like you, it's, it's fascinating. All of a sudden, it was like a monastery. And they're watching hope writhe on the ground in agony. And then after the halftime, remember what happened? He comes running out in the field and the crowd's like, <gasps> And then what do we do for an entire week? Admit it. Men and maybe some women, you're checking the ESPN updates. Is he going to play? Is he going to play? Is he going to play? He played. And we won. The, the, the point of this passage in the book of Revelation is the king plays. Our true hope that is found in Jesus Christ, more so than a quarterback, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, no matter how bad the game seems to look, 
No matter how bad the game will even get because it's going to get worse. During the dark times, the king plays. During the good times, the, the king plays. And that's reason for us to celebrate. So when we sing these songs, and there are songs that I have to admit, sometimes I, I don't, I don't, I've never heard them before. And so I go back to Ben and I say, okay, tell me more about this. Help me better understand it. So the next time when we sing it, I can sing it. But, but let's lay that aside. If the song's about Christ, the king plays. Celebrate. And the 24 elders show us what that looks like. They don't care what they look like. The king is on the field. The king is playing. This is the king's celebration. Number three, the king's conquering. The point here is not chronology. In fact, do you, do you see in the, your English standard versions, or maybe you have another English version that might look like this, it kind of looks different than the rest of the words. They look like they're kind of like poetic. Do you see that? The reason for that is because the translators saw in this grammar that appears to be more poetic or indicate that this is a hymn. And the point of a hymn is not chronology, but instead, in this case, fulfillment. Would you write that down? The point of these verses is not chronology. The point of this is fulfillment. That's why you see this reference to Psalm 2. But look at what it says, verse 17. We give thanks to you. Look at this name, Lord God Almighty. This is the powerful one. Listen, there are divine beings that are at the disposal of Satan himself that are powerful. I mean, let's just call it what the Bible calls it. That's what it is. In fact, Paul in Ephesians refers to these divine beings, these powerful beings as powers, as principalities, as rulers. They are powerful. But, but, but our God is the Lord God Almighty. He's superior. There's no one like him. Then it goes on to say who is and who was and what do we expect to follow. Who is to come. That's what we saw back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. But we don't see that here, do we? Now we look at a, a future past concept. It's a prophetic concept of something that is happening in the future being declared as though it has already taken place. It says, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. When? In verse 15. So, so this isn't describing the one who someday is to come. This is describing actually him taking his great power and beginning to reign. And look at the content of his reign. Verse 18. There's wrath. Because that is part of who God is. There's judgment. Because that is part of who God is. And there is reward. But I love that. Look at the imagery of the beginning of verse 18. I think John is using this intentionally. The nations what? What does it say? Look at the text. The nations rage. The same vocabulary, though they're in the Hebrew form in Psalm 2. And I think what John is doing is he's saying, look at all of these patterns throughout all of history that have continued. The serpent, the seed, the serpent, the seed, the nations raging against the Lord's representatives. And this is the point where it's all done Super Bowl victory. 
You ever get tired of watching the news? Doesn't it seem like the bad happens over and over and over again? That's why so many have stopped watching the news, but it's not unique to the 21st century. As I've illustrated, go back to the garden, go back to Adam and Eve, and then continue on as you get to Genesis 5. Genesis 5 is fascinating. Verse 28, you see a guy in the genealogy. Genealogies are fascinating, by the way. Don't skip through the genealogies. Genesis 5, there's, there's a guy named Lamech, and he has a son, and he calls him Noah. Why does he call him that? Well, duh, pastor, that's the guy with the ark. No, 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 the name Noah means rest. Lamech is looking at his life. He's looking at his forerunners, and he's saying, I'm tired of these patterns. Maybe my son will be the one who brings Noah rest. We see it continue in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. It says, the nation of Israel in Egypt lifted up their groanings to God. How long, Lord? And he heard them. Israel with the Philistines, Israel with the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans. It continues on and on and on. We're all longing for God to step in, not just to give temporary relief. He, he does that in our lives, doesn't he? He causes suffering to, to come to an end for, for a while, and then what happens? More suffering. We see that in patterns of politics. We see that in patterns of legislation. I mean, I don't want to get political here, but I celebrated when Roe versus Wade was defeated. But then what happened the very next morning? All of the states are getting together and trying to go to war again. It's over. Jesus has laid the groundwork for this hymn of praise. He laid that groundwork in the teaching of his disciples back in John 16, 34, didn't he? Take heart, I have overcome the world. But isn't that interesting? The world continues to thrive. Jesus is using the imagery that John is picking up in his description of Revelation. But then Jesus also laid the foundation for this in what he did, not just what he taught. His crucifixion and his resurrection are the down payment. They are the guarantee that 15 through 19 will take place. Verse 18, not only does he judge, but he also rewards. Look at what it says. He rewards your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name. Now, some believe that these are three different categories of people. And from an Old Testament standpoint, that appears to be the case. But we don't read the Bible from an Old Testament standpoint. We read the Bible from the whole. And as we look at the trajectory, the trajectory is moving away from segregation, isn't it? It's moving away from an ethnic people being the people of God. It's toward an understanding that the people of God are one group. It's always been moving toward one group. Let me give you some passages. They'll put it up on the screen. Romans 9, 6. Not all who have descended ethnically from the nation of Israel are actually Israel, showing us that there is a spiritual reality that God has always been moving us toward, and that is one people group. 
Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Not that there's not gender differences, but that's not our identity. There's no favor found in that from God. There's neither slave nor free. Galatians 6.16, he refers to the Israel of God, I think, referring to this imagery of the one people group of God. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood that is echoed again in Revelation. And then Revelation 5.9, the scene from the throne room is that there are people there from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not saying that that is literally what is being described, not saying that every people group, every language will have at least one representative. Remember the trajectory. Remember how John is actually unpacking the book of Revelation. What that's saying is there's no barriers. There's no segregation. Remember chapter 7, the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Remember I showed you in the descriptions and in the way the tribes are actually written and the, the, the numbers being exactly how they are. That's symbolic. And that's one way to look at the group. And then the rest of chapter 7 is another way to look at the group. And it's all one group. So why would the trajectory be going away from segregation and then we go back? Same thing with the temple, and we'll get to that here in just a moment. Why would the trajectory of the Bible be away from a building and away from a place? And then we go back. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? Behold, the day is coming and is now here when it's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship and who you put your faith in. That's always been the trajectory of the Bible. So Why would we go back to a segregated people group? Why would we go back to an actual physical temple? I I don't think we will. And what's awesome about this, look at this, is that nobody is left out, the small and the great. No matter what your designation is, this side of eternity, you will be judged. And if you're trusting in the completed work of Christ, you will be rewarded. This is the king's conquering. Number four, the king's completion. Verse 19, I love this. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. What in the world? Now if all we're doing is looking at verse 19, we believe this to be an actual temple. If all we're doing is looking at verse 19, we believe this to be an actual ark. But that's not what John is describing. Let me show that to you by looking at the end of the seals. Go back to chapter 8, would you please? As you're doing so, some believe that the seventh seal then contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet then contains the seven bowls, and I, I don't see that in the flow of the text. I had these pastors tell me this week that, well, wait till you get to the bowls, you'll, you'll see differently, and maybe... But so far, that's not what I see. Chapter 8, describing the seventh seal, goes to temple imagery, doesn't it? Verse 3, another angel came, stood at the altar. Do you see that? Golden censer. The smoke from the incense. These are temple images. Temple imagery. 
And I think what John is doing with the seventh trumpet is simply going back to that. It's a replay from a different angle at a different pace. Still in chapter 8, verse 5, what happens after the smoke is going up before God and the angel takes the censer and fills it with fire in the altar, throws it to the earth. There were, look at it, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now when you flip back to chapter 11, look at what you see. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, heavy hail. I think John is describing the same thing he did back in chapter 8 as he describes the seventh trumpet. So I don't think this is a literal physical temple. I don't think it's the temple of the millennium. I don't think it's a temple in Jerusalem because of chapter 8. But then there's a second reason. Look at what it says in verse 19. The, then God's temple, look at the phrase, in heaven. And, and when you're looking at the imagery of temple, when you're looking at the imagery of the garden, when you're looking at the imagery of, of God dwelling with his people and his people dwelling with him and, and how we are supposed to worship, the, the trajectory has always been that these locations are copies of the format of heaven. The Garden of Eden, copy, tabernacle, copy, temple, copy, even us as believers in the New Testament era are copies of the layout of worship in heaven. But listen to this. Here's a, a quote. The copies give way to the completion. That's what I think John is doing here. Is he's using descriptions of things that they could relate to, but he's drawing them not to the physical location, not to the structure itself, but to what those copies represented, and that is the completion of God fulfilling his dwelling. Which brings us to a third reason. I don't think this is a physical temple. I don't think this is a physical Ark of the Covenant because of what the Ark of the Covenant represents. By the way, you know what's interesting? I found this as I studied this past week. Rabbinical liter literature assumes that once the Ark was taken away in the Babylonian captivity that they'll never see it again. Isn't that interesting? The Jewish rabbis never expected the ark to return again. So John using this here would have been flying in the face of how the Jews would have understood the ark of the covenant. So what's the point? What was the purpose of the ark of the covenant? The dwelling presence of God. We saw that back in Genesis 3, 8, that God wants to dwell with his people. We saw it in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God wants to dwell with his people. Ezekiel 36, or 37, 26 through 28, God wants to dwell with his people. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he dwells with us through his Holy Spirit. But Revelation 21, 3, that's when it all comes to completion. And I think Revelation 21, 3 is the unpacking of eleven nineteen. So what do we do with this? Well, we observe the Lord's table, but before we do, here's four points for us to ponder. First, God's people will be persecuted, maybe even killed for the gospel. Revelation is clear on that. So friends, when, when you stand up for Christ, when you share the gospel with your loved ones and they reject you, don't be surprised. 
Understand that God is sovereign and he's actually working. That's why farming imagery is so often associated with evangelism, that we plant seeds, we water seeds. And just as a farmer doesn't expect a full crop the day after planting, neither should we with evangelism. We long for it and there are times when that happens. But we understand that it's a process and we understand that God's people will be persecuted for the gospel. Number two, God's people will be vindicated. That's the book of Revelation. 11, 15 through 19. There will be a day when the king will be coronated. We will celebrate. He has conquered. No more battles to be won. It's complete. Oh, come Lord Jesus. There will be a day. Number three, God will protect his people against all satanic opposition. But remember, this is God's definition of protect. So I think, again, we want to assign our definition. Well, protection means I'm not going to suffer. No, we we will suffer. We will experience Satan's oppression, but the end goal of Satan's oppression will never be achieved. Number four, God will bring this all to completion. Revelation is the replay. And verses 15 through 19 remind us it's time to celebrate. 